When we left off, we were discussing why it is that Europe, and in particular Northwestern Europe, achieved modern economic growth and diverged from the rest of the world. Regardless of what explains unprecedented economic growth in the West, the question remains why the rest of the world did not catch up. And one thing that's really easy to underestimate, given how little we're taught about it in schools in Pakistan, and even in much of the global North, is how our underdeveloped present is shaped by the colonial past. See, the Mughals came to South Asia from outside, so to speak, from Central Asia, but they didn't extract the wealth to take it somewhere else. They settled here. But that's not true of European colonialism. The wealth that was extracted from different parts of the world, including South Asia, much of it was reinvested in Europe, some of it was reinvested in European colonies, or I should say white settler colonies in North America or Australia. That's not to say that Europe pulled ahead because of colonialism. It seems that colonialism, in part, has to be explained by the same things that led to modern economic growth in Europe. But there was almost certainly a contribution to quickening and boosting their economic growth from colonial plunder. Again, it's a question of where all that capital comes from in the first place. Organizing how this plunder was going to happen in the colonies had a significant effect on how life and livelihoods were organized. The ideology of maximizing profits translated into an ideology of maximizing extraction, or it might even have been the opposite. But what that means is that politics, economics, society, culture, nothing was left untouched by the colonial encounter. Again, it's not just that there was more or less of trade and production. It's that the way that trade and production happened in colonized nations was changed. Class relations changed and sometimes get implanted anew as a consequence of colonialism. But there were different colonizers and they did not encounter societies as blank slates. They couldn't just do whatever they wanted to do. They had to engage and negotiate. So what were these pre-colonial economies looking like and how did different colonizers react to different societies? And then what kinds of struggles and negotiations and accommodations shaped new colonial political economies? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we look at how politics and economics interrelate but also talk about how political economy can encompass a lot more than just politics and economics. Over the course of this podcast, we'll be inviting scholars from different disciplines and perspectives to speak to us about how they approach these kinds of questions. I am your host, Numan Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss the relationship between colonialism and underdevelopment, I invited Dr. Imran Ali and Dr. Bridget Alachlan, who both have long and very distinguished careers in economic history and economic analysis. So we're going to hear first from Dr. Imran Ali, who was professor of business policy at the Karachi School of Business and Leadership. He's retired now. And before that, he played an important role in founding and setting up the Lahore University of Management Sciences, both in Pakistan. He's author of the classic work, The Punjab Under Imperialism, 1885 to 1947. I did my schooling in uh, Lahore. I did my O-levels and A-levels from Hson College. And then I went to Sussex University, which was a new, a new university 
a very revolutionary university, in fact, uh, in England. Uh, and I was part of a privilege, really, to be a student in the School of African and Asian Studies. And that meant that my undergraduate courses were focused on Africa and Asia, on the Orient, as the whole world was, rather than, uh, because I wanted to do history, so rather than uh, a huge emphasis on European history, etc., British history. And uh, w what they did was, uh, as part of their innovative undergraduate program, is to replace three-hour exams, four-hour exams with dissertations. So I did two major dissertations on uh, Pakistan. And in a sense, that uh, opened the way for me for the kind of research I wanted to do for my PhD. One of my major subject courses at, at Sussex was on agrarian relations. And we had to do a 10,000-word dissertation for that. And another major subject uh, was on, I think, politics, etc. So I did another 10,000-word dissertation on Punjab politics for that. But for the first one, I actually... The thesis I did was called the Chenab Canal Colony, the inception of a society. And I actually started using the India office records and the British Museum Library in, on, in Russell Square for my for research for this dissertation. And so I actually almost knew what I was going to do. Fortunate, I was very fortunate. I almost knew what I was going to do for my PhD, which was an extension and expansion and further exploration of my undergraduate thesis on the Chenab Colony. Because... From the Chenab colony, then I found that there are actually about around nine canal colonies that the British set up. And I felt that my work should be really a broad overview of what these colonies entailed. What were the major thematic policy, operational types of uh, issues that were confronted and tackled? How did it uh, kind of articulate over five or six uh, decades at that time, you know, coming across new research uh, material, archives, there weren't archives in Pakistan, but records was one of the most exciting things possible. That's the exciting part of doing a PhD. If you're uncovering new material, and I was fortunate enough to really almost find a gold mine in, uh, on the Punjab in London to some extent, but also in Lahore in the Board of Revenue Records. So all of that is in my footnotes and in the bibliography of the book. And people should really maybe just read the footnotes to see how, you know, a narrative is constructed on the basis of what kind of materials. The challenge was to bring that together in a narrative, which, well, I mean, the thesis of the book are there for people to judge. Dr. Bridget O'Loughlin is originally from the United States, but she's retired from the Institute of Social Studies in the Netherlands. And she's a research associate of the Institute of Economic and Social Studies in Mozambique. Her work on colonial and post-colonial Mozambique's rural economy and political systems has been of considerable importance in guiding my own work. So I was pretty excited to speak with her. Now, you're going to note that she talks about her experience in Chad. She was there starting in 1969 and later in Mozambique. She went there in 1978 and worked there for over a decade. So here's Dr. Bridget. My research on the whole, it's been about class, gender, and race in agrarian Africa, and mainly agrarian Southern Africa, and mainly actually Mozambique. My first research though, was in southern Chad, and it was on capitalism, class, 
and changing ways of working. It was a, on the decline of cooperative work groups, although actually that's not true. It was about cooperative work groups, how they were used, um, when they were used, who used them, all of that, in a cotton-growing area. And after that, I started teaching, and I also became, as a result of that, I became more and more concerned with um, with finding a way to do more effective uh, research. And so when I heard that there was the opportunity of going to Mozambique and that they were trying a socialist transition, and it happened that they needed someone for a project on cotton and that was the area where I'd worked in Chad. I thought, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. I want to go. So I left my job. I planned only to be gone for about three years. And anyway, I wanted to do something else uh, than what I was doing then anyway. And uh, I ended up staying for 13 years. And in that second period, it was my research was really around agrarian work again mainly although I also did some stuff in the ports but again on the transformation of work in a context where socialist transition was supposed to be taking place but without a strong proletarian base so the kind of situation that some people viewed as one in which in which there could be no socialist transition. But I worked in the Center of African Studies and we shared this problematic and we did lots and lots of research on uh, state farms, on co-ops, on port work with that idea of transformation in, yeah, as, as the basis of that. So that was very practically oriented research. I wasn't writing for academic journals. Um, and we wrote collectively, and we wrote a lot of research reports that would be read by party, by government, and a journal which was more, we had a, a Mozambican studies journal that was read locally, as were some of our reports. And then I also, in that work, became involved in the whole set of questions around migrant labor in southern Africa more generally, uh, which covered a pretty wide range of different situations in Mozambique, but brought us into connection with South Africa, which was then under apartheid as well. So we weren't doing any research directly there, and yet it was uh, involved with it. Then when I left after those 13 years and came back, I first started to think about, to want to write and think about on the basis of the research that I'd already done, the question of class, gender, and migrant labor more generally. And so I, I didn't do new research on that. It was basically working with my past research, our past research really, and also a lot of um, secondary literature and statistical evidence, and I also did work on Botswana uh, as a result of that. 
And then I much more recently started working on questions of health, public health in particular, and focusing once again on the relationship between work and health, uh, and bringing into that issues of class, issues of gender, issues of race, which has been over the last period mainly my uh, latest focus. And you know, I'm, I must say I'm not quite so productive anymore. And during this whole period of the lockdown, I've not gone back to do field research, uh, which is, and, and anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting old enough so that it's much more difficult for me to do field research. And yet that's the basis on which I feel like I've had some authenticity. So that's a problem. And then the last thing I've worked on a bit, I think also unsatisfactorily, is the problematizing what's called the surplus population question in Southern Africa. So you can see that it's kind of a cluster around issues of class, gender, and race in agrarian Southern Africa. So what do pre-colonial relations look like? What did things look like prior to the colonial encounter? It can be pretty hard to tell, and knowledge about this is changing over time. For example, there's this idea that prior to colonialism, villages were self-sufficient. That's true for both Indian villages and Mozambican villages. The idea was that they're self-sufficient, largely oriented to subsistence production, meaning they did not engage with markets too much. There was market engagement, but not too much. You know, they didn't really buy or sell things on the markets. Or, for example, that there was not a lot of wage labor. So there's been this idea of static village societies that then get dynamized by colonialism, if by dynamic or dynamism we mean introduction into market relations. But that doesn't seem to be entirely correct. Let's get a sense of it, starting with Punjab. Yeah, I mean, this is... uh something that I have not done deep archival research on, but I think I've, looking at it uh, from the British period backwards, I've posed certain questions, given the kind of society Punjab was and was developing into, that uh, what could have happened out here to reach these outcomes. And clearly, I think what came through, I mean, a lot of it is even our own personal family history, but... uh, is that the Punjab was different from other parts of South Asia in the late Mughal period and the post-Mughal interregnums were quite different. So what you have in one area after another in the old Mughal empire were the subadars, the governors becoming kings. As Delhi implodes, the central Mughal power weakens, their Uh, governors, subadars become kings and they set up their own dynasties. And the British actually confront these regional states which are having a regional efflorescence of culture, architecture, economy even in those areas. And their task, the British imperialist task, is to destructure these kingdoms one by one. So we know the stories about Deepu Sultan, Nizam of Hyderabad, Awad, Murshidabad, etc., but in the Punjab, what happened to the governors, uh, Mughal governors uh, of the Punjab? 
there's no huge uh, tombs for them there's no glory glorified kind of dynasties that they set up the last governor is buried in the uh, you know courtyard of uh, rukne alam or bahawala one of those guys in uh, saint saint peshaw in, in in multan that was his last stand so in punjab what happened was and to some extent like the maratha areas is that the peasantry began to rebel from around the early uh, 18th century and you see the first major rebellion around 1710 i think yeah banda there's a guy called banda who is just me the guy we don't know his real name in gurdaspur and that takes the mughals a few years to uh, control and from there you see the peasantry begin to become more and more confident and they're of course pushed back there there are massacres they're killed uh, the mughal elite strikes back uh, but by the mid 18th century these guys have virtually taken over and they have displaced the old mughal elite physically economically socially and within them they've created some of their own petty dynasties which are the princely states that the, that the british recognize and these people are from peasant backgrounds so kapoorthala was set up by jassa singh kalal you know who was a liquor distiller and he was uh, the uh, the leader of uh, one of the most successful war bands and he sets up his own little state which became the state of kapoorthala the pulkian states of east punjab which were the most revenue rich patiala naba faridkot i think jain they are called pulkia because all these characters these princes so called are descended from a sidhu jat called pol we don't even know his dad's name now if so so the peasantry you see then overcomes mughal rule it overcomes its vadheras its landlord segment and it establishes autonomous peasant political economy now one of the these uh, the the largest of these missiles actually sets up the kingdom of lahore under uh, ranjit singh almost you know attempting to become an empire in its own way and that is the big difference because between punjab and the rest i think uh, much of the rest of the mughal empire further east because there the agrarian hierarchies are preserved but i think the next point i want to make is that why were these uh rebellions happening what fomented them in the first place why was was the punjabi peasantry uh, so recalcitrant by the early 18th century now of course then you get the irfan habib thesis which is about the agrarian crisis of the mughal economy that uh, the overconsumption of the mughal elite and uh, their extractive their over extraction essentially from agriculture led to Uh, sort of a you know uh, almost like a economic crisis in northern india and that's why in a sense aurangzeb has to move into the deccan to get more loot uh so that is one thesis that the revolution that the peasantry was being over exploited in the end they go into revolution that becomes more and more successful and then also linked to that the how they actually overcome the regional elite is because of the body blows and you see the physical positioning of the punjab that the body blows that the two invasions of nadir shah in 1739 i think 
and about 15 years later, Ahmed Shah Abdali. The body blows through the regional elite from these two invasions. So those elites in the more eastern parts of India never experienced these kind of external shocks. So they were able to contain any peasant recalcitrance. And maybe the Punjab elite, Mughal elite, might have been able to do that, except that the Punjab, of course, is the area that takes the big shocks of external invasions for centuries. So that was another reason for this peasant success. But why the rebellions? One thing, okay, agrarian exploitation. But then the more I you know, looked into it, and that's what led me on to subsequent kinds of processes also in what I call counter-revolutions, is that the economy of the Punjab was also growing, you know, quite substantially under the Mughals. There's a couple of centuries of overall peace and stability. There is increased urbanization. There is uh, the growth of quite substantial urban centers. And you can count them, you know, there's quite a few of them in Punjab. That means a secondary sector is emerging. That means that there is a fleshing out of the class system and maybe a middle class is emerging. And that means that there is greater demand on agricultural production and perhaps also into cash cropping and into uh, not only food crops, but fiber crops as well. So this greater commercialization or monetization of the agrarian economy could have been one reason for the peasant uh, rebellion, as the peasantry perhaps is goes into debt, as the financiers and traders, the mercantile, emerging mercantile class begins to do something like what the British, uh, you know, merchants were doing in the uh, agricultural revolution in Britain. Advance credit, get more productivity out of them, maybe more, you know, kind of uh, specialized production. So these peasant rebellions could perhaps also be a counteraction against an emerging market economy, a crypto capitalism that was emerging here. So these are, I think, the two fundamental mechanisms that created this peasant uprising, etc., which was being controlled for the early decades by the regional lead, but then the body blows of these external invasions were the ones that by 1750 you find that there's a, you know, that Ahmad Shah Abdali, why does he leave the Punjab? He's conquered the Punjab, why does he leave it? Because the peasantry is militarized, this guerrilla war, he can't hold on. And then for the next sort of 100 years, it's a question of the paramountcy of the peasant uh, lineages, along with some large holdings that were eventually recognized even as princely states by the British. And basically, this is just who is a better fighter, who is a better warrior, gets more land, gets more status. Yeah, I think that uh, from the leadership of the peasant uh, war bands, you get the emergence of the Sardar, Sardar class among the six. So quite large parts of even uh, Western Punjab were, uh, in a titular sense, owned by six Sardars. You know, in Shekhupura and you know, etc. And of course, the whole area east of the current uh, uh, India-Pakistan frontier. So these Sardars then become the local, but 
even so, when the British come, when you look at Kessinger's book, Tom Kessinger's book, Vilayatpur, on Jalandhar district, he finds that it's the peasant Bayachara, the brotherhood of the landed peasant lineage of Jat Sikhs, who are the owners of the land. There is no uh, overlord or zamindar sitting on top of them. You see? And therefore, to my mind, this uh, raising of the this destruction of the lid of feudal constraints then uh, dynamizes the Punjab peasantry, the Punjabi people. So the contrast with Sindh. Now in Sindh, the Vedera's carry on. They're sitting there, still sitting there as a lid on the aspirations and rights uh, of the people, etc. So that the Sindhi uh, peasant hasn't even been able to move into Karachi substantially. There's the Muhajirs and then the Pathans and the Punjabis who moved into Karachi. Whereas the Punjabi people, the Punjabi peasantry is sitting in Vancouver, in, in Toronto, in Manchester, in Queensland, growing bananas and sugarcane in northern Australia, northeast Australia. So, so, so you see, you can see this kind of autonomy providing its own dynamism to sections of the Punjabi uh, population. Okay, so it's a long way from 18th century Punjab to, uh, you know, a high-rated gabru dancing around Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. But uh, maybe we get a sense of uh, some of the history that made that possible. Now, let's shift to Mozambique. And if you don't know where that is, I encourage you to take a look at a map real quick. And you'll notice that it is a thin and long country on the southeastern coast of Africa. The Portuguese got to the coasts in the 1500s, but they did not really consolidate their control into the uh, interiors until the later 1800s. So broadly, you can divide this area into three regions, which had somewhat different kinds of political economies. It's it's very hard to know, and um, and a lot there's we know a lot more now. And, and and historians, you know, I don't, haven't read everything that's now been written, know a lot more than, you know, than, than I did then. But in a loose way, the classification of different regions still matters. And Mozambique is a very long country. So in terms of climate and ecology, there's a lot of diversity. So um, southern Mozambique, the extreme south, is really semi-arid except for being crossed by these big uh really big regional river systems so um yeah that it would be familiar for parts of pakistan i think and those areas were big cattle areas they're also uh free of tsetse and trypanosomiasis stuff so they they um they but they combined that with um, dry season agriculture and some rainy season cultivation along the edges of these river basins, but not with irrigation. So you didn't have in Mozambique itself at that point, plow cultivation. You had an open land frontier and there was some Indian Ocean trade, 
but not very much um, that, you know, would stop on their way in Maputo, on their way around the Cape. Um, however, the next region up, the where the Zambezi River Basin is, was an area that was intensely involved in the gold trade from the time of the Great Zimbabwe. So, you know, that part. And there was, you know, there was an, uh, 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 before the Portuguese, there was an Indian Ocean trade, both with Arabic speakers and also from India. And that has a different kind of history. Uh, more involvement in the slave trade. And uh, that was one of the core areas of the changing forms of slavery and slave use. And it's also where the Portuguese entered uh, and from where they were trying to actually uh, form a kind of um, bridge to Angola and uh, a bigger piece of Southern Africa than they managed to, to obtain. So that within that area, there was a, also a lot of trade. And when the, and, and including trade up to the, the, the Congo Basin and the mining, now they know a whole lot more about mining and labor use in mines and stuff, which frankly, I mean, I, I didn't know at the time that I was in Mozambique. And that area under under colonial rule was then opened up to um, plantation agriculture, so so that was a, a big change. But it it wasn't um, it wasn't a purely subsistence oriented um, society um, before. But again, open land frontier, no big areas of um, local differentiation in terms of size of land holdings, but there were land concessions. These concessionaries who were hereditary concessionaries, many of them were women, actually, and they had the right essentially to the things that were harvested within their area, and the people who lived within it, but certain certain things had to bring it to them. So they had enough to live off of. And some of them also then raised, um, you know, could raise armies or whatever. And these, the Portuguese took over. So, uh, and expanded. And then the um, upper area, which was um, also uh, Savannah, uh, really, was also an area that had been involved in the slave trade and in which people who've now looked at lineage histories and how things operate and whatever um, introduced the history, the pre-colonial um, slave trade, much more explicitly into their historical work, um, things which we, we didn't really see at the time that I was there. So overall, I guess we can say that it's not exactly some kind of uh, set of societies that are isolated from the the outside world. There is trade 
a slave trade, of and course, change, is a lot of change. So that whole notion of the prim of the primordial commune or something, you know, no, lots of change and change that we don't really understand so well, or at least uh, probably there's, you know, right now there's probably good historical work that I don't know. Right. So at at that time, it would be harder to, ironically the closer you are to that kind of history, sometimes it can be harder to understand it. Uh, but we're not talking about isolated societies. We're talking about societies that are involved in exchange and trade relations, which can span continents yeah. to the to the Arab-speaking areas and to India. And it's not like the Portuguese came into a, a kind of a blank slate or, as you said, a primordial commune society. It may be that there were no big landholders as such, but, you know, people are still engaged in different forms of trade, different forms of making livings. Uh, and there's probably some degrees of inequality, uh, although we may not, looking back at it, it may not seem very unequal from the perspective that we may be adopting today. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Yes. And then there's the colonial encounter. So although the British first conquered Bengal in 1757, they did not really reach the western part of South Asia or what's the northwestern part until the middle of the 1800s. At that time, Punjab and what is now known as Khyber Pakhtunkhwa were part of the Sikh Empire. And after a couple of wars in the 1840s, the British finally conquered this region in 1849. So how do a relatively few white colonizers deal with these vast lands and peoples. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's where, uh, I mean, colonialism <laughs> wants to deal with a few people to control most of the people. But then what happens, I think, is that, of course, the British have to fight the sick, new sardars, the new landlords, etc., the peasantry in these uh, wars, Chilnyawala, etc., um, so there is acrimony, uh, but the remarkable achievement, I think, of the British was that by 1857, they turned these people on their side. And there's a so-called Lahore School. And I often wonder, you know, if our bureaucrats should really be taught about what did the Lahore School do, these Lawrence brothers and a handful of British bureaucrats, what did they promise the Punjabi people? to make them, you know, fight for them against their own so-called countrymen. Now, of course, to some extent, <laughs> they weren't countrymen because they were the poor bee recruits into the East Indian Company army, the old army, uh, which had conquered Punjab. So there was quite a lot of antagonism towards them. But I think that the British did offer them, after a few decades of convulsions and instability, in the Punjab, they said that, all right, we'll do a few things. The deal is, we, we recognize you as the owners of the land. We'll have the Jama Bandi, etc., Girdwari in your name. We will levy a moderate amount of revenue from you, so that looks after our fiscal and administrative costs. And number three, why not? We come into the British Indian Army. And the first... <laughs> you know, a kind of opportunity for that is the wars of 1857-1858. So that's how I think, by a remarkable, I think, understanding of maybe history or 
whatever the British are able to convince the Punjabi kind of uh, upper peasantry and the landlord elements to that the future lay with the cooperation with them. And now these people didn't have long memories of, you know, uh, like the Talukdars of Awadh or the old, you know, uh, Muslim landed elite of Bengal, uh, that the, these people are, uh, you know, displacing them, etc. So I think that's why there was more readiness of the Punjab to cooperate with the, with colonialism, which then had long-term repercussions, of course, ramifications. Now, this is what happens with the British when they find that, look, the revenue's got to be paid. We've got to set up the civil courts and all that because that's modern institutions. So the money lenders, as the need for uh, commercial farming grows after 1850, uh, you begin to get this next wave of capitalism coming in, which is the British call the, the Baniya, the agricultural indebtedness of the Punjabi peasantry. And to try and control the political and social ramifications of that, which would have been expropriation perhaps, which could have been going along the lines of the British agrarian, you know, restructuring, where you destroy the peasantry virtually and you turn them into hapless uh, urban workers on starvation wages. So the British come up as a result of trying to consolidate this agrarian society with the Land Alienation Act of 1900. It's a remarkable piece of paternal legislation to protect your, you know, the intermediaries or groups that you want to uh, maintain, retain and, and provide stability for. Again, for those three reasons that, you know, they'll give us the revenue, they'll be in our army. And they'll provide the political stability. So only in the Punjab is this Land Alienation Act, uh, you know, coming uh, sort of enacted. Uh, and, yeah. and just to clarify, the Land Alienation Act is saying that the only people who can actually own land are so-called agrarian castes. So if you're an urban banya and you gave somebody a loan and now that farmer cannot repay the loan then that Baniya cannot take the land. The land cannot be That's alienated. Absolutely. I mean, it's incredible. So you are stopping the market economy in its tracks. And you are saying to the peasant, it's a very humane thing in a sense. It is saying, you know, you will not be, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, expropriated by these uh, amoral, uh, profit-oriented, uh, you know, operators. We will protect you. Um, but I think that does impact on the uh, prospects of new society, a restructured society, a capitalist society. Capitalism comes in and, you know, redeals and reshuffles the whole pack of cards. So what we find then uh, uh, with British colonialism also is that while, of course, again, with stability, with the canal colonies, with the railways, transport, etc., there's a, you, again a large amount of economic expansion and commercial agriculture. The effort of the state is to uh, control capitalism, not to let, let it run wild, which is totally opposite from the British example. And therefore, the British obviously, you know, are quite hostile to the middle classes and the 
you know, the business classes who are necessary for running the market economy, you know, and, and, and agrarian trade and the beginnings of agro-processing. But they don't want them to begin to destabilize the kind of uh, system that they've, you know, uh, established in the Punjab. But I think what's interesting here is that if they block this certain kind of capitalism or an agrarian capitalism, if we can, if we want to call it that, uh, you know, you mentioned canal colonies and the railways. This is obviously capitalism uh, of a different kind. This is massive capital investment that they're doing in order to maximize their extraction. Maybe not to maximize the profits of the business class in uh, South Asia or in India, but certainly to increase um, British revenue. And, I, you know, maybe maybe we can talk about this. Of course, this has been the prime focus of your work. But it's so important because there may be not enough appreciation of how recent Punjab is. The Punjab that we see is basically 100 years old. It's not, it's not yeah. a, a very old thing. And that this really, re, this does reinvent, in a way, uh, rural society in Punjab. So... Uh, you know, if we can, if we can just maybe begin with asking, what was this landscape like before the canals were built uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s? I think that's when canalization yeah. began. So my understanding is that this was um, mostly pastoralists, like nomads, in a sense. Yeah, and I think that you know, there's a lot of work, fascinating work, to be done on the ecological history of the Punjab. Because it is an area that's been transformed. And uh, what happened was that the traditional, there was some agriculture in the Punjab. And that was at the level of the river plains, the river valley. So the, the river was a little bit below the uh, interfluve or dwab between those, the two rivers, let's say. And so uh, the traditional agricultural systems uh, comprised either wells or inundation or seasonal canals where the settled agricultural, uh, I mean, castes were uh, positioned down the Chenab, down the Ravi, down the Jhelum. Now, the area between the Ravi and the Chenab and the Chenab and the Jhelum, these vast tracts, that's where the pastoralists, or generically called Janglis, the pastoral tribes lived. And these were semi-nomadic they uh, essentially their prime resource was uh, cattle and cattle resources were apparently quite strong here so they would of course be moving from uh, you know their uh, semi-permanent habitations around the savanna grassland or the doab and that's exactly where the canals were made so the whole idea being by the british that if you can make a weir or capture river water uh, sufficiently further up river through then through gravitational river flow uh, water flow you can actually uh, irrigate these huge you know arid lands now of course that meant the complete effacement of jungly pastoral society and unfortunately with that the loss of a huge part of the uh, cattle and livestock resources because they were not really catered for. I mean, these people were, the canals were constructed, and now who's going to, uh, you know, <laughs> cultivate the land? So that was the big problem, because the 
population resources of western punjab were very low it was a very you know kind of uh, low population density districts out here but central punjab was beginning to get according to the british narrative uh, some degree of population congestion so for the largest colony which was the uh, lower chenab colony fed by the lower chenab canal and its two or three major branches uh, the british identified seven districts seven or so districts from central punjab now this was also the heartland of the sikh population so what you get there is agriculturists from uh, sikh agriculturists being moved and given in aggregate these huge landed resources in western punjab and to sort of uh, hop a few stages to my mind a lot of the genocide or killings of 181947 sorry 1947 was because the sikhs had been colonized towards the west and they now stood to be cut into two and what you see in 18 in 1947 is a further is a decolonization of these sikhs back into the central punjab and that the tensions created the conflict of huge communal killings you know on both sides so one is where is the agriculturist going to come from the land grantee number two and equally more important who is he what what social basis is that agriculturist going to come from and that is where you find that the punjab or this indus valley irrigated zone is probably the biggest example of imperialism in action you know we can try to analyze and understand imperialism through its millions of activities here not simply through the writings or aspirations or analyses of uh, uh, you know colonial administrators but through action through through real active history so for the british the control of land is important they build these canals in western punjab by dispossessing an entire existing population the pastoralists the so called janglis and uh, their uses of the land are also displaced and the british are doing that to increase their revenue and to provide stable support to their quote unquote peasant allies we will get to how the british parceled out these lands and what that meant for class formation in a bit But first, let's go back to Mozambique and think through the colonial encounters impacts on the political economy there. So as I noted, the Portuguese first arrived at the turn of the 1500s, but they started moving in to consolidate their rule later in the 1800s and the later 1800s. So some definitions which Dr. Bridget will mention, plantations, these are large tracts of land where you are basically growing a single crop. could be cotton could be sugarcane so we have tea plantations for example in uh, sri lanka or in northeastern india which were also started by the british and so the portuguese are doing that with other crops in mozambique and because you have these large tracts of land what you need there are workers you need labor which will work on these plantations now crops like sugarcane or cotton are also cash crops and cash crops are not only grown for subsistence they're grown to be sold on the market often even international markets cash crops can also be grown not just on plantations but also by smaller farmers under some kind of arrangement so the portuguese in mozambique 
Uh, where they did that, um, set up land concessions and early land concessions, were enormous areas, um, but where um, what people gained from that, what they were most interested in gaining from that, would be gold and ivory, which required work, you know. So there were not, it was not the basis on the whole for the control of agricultural surpluses. And where that was happening, it would be through tribute um, or tax that was owed administratively, yes, but where people could move to another territory um, fairly easily. And it was the connection between the person who held the, the right to that and control of arms or force, which made that possible. And these things were not very permanent. So it didn't, it didn't either enter into firm hierarchy, to firm local hierarchies. And I think it's probably true that they weren't there. Um, it's hard to know. Yeah. There were certainly uh, title holders, uh, lineages that had uh, ritual powers, uh, but control, and, and it was more being in control of the people who inhabited a particular area of land rather than the land itself. I think that's still, I think that's right, yeah, but I mean, we look at all these things, some, as I said, somewhat differently now, but I think that that's still right. So what the Portuguese did, um, since they had uh, very, they were willing to invest very little themselves. Their trading power had declined. They had no big accumulation of capital. Um, it, you know, it's it, you could look at Brazil and see what happened there, and it would be somewhat similar. But where an actual hierarchy really was established, and so what they did was to um, assume administrative control over certain areas, they moved the capital to the south to displace the sheikhs uh, who had control in the, um, along the coast in the um, center and north. Um, so something like also in Tanzania. So they, they wanted to um, move, they, they wanted to give those to concessionary capitalist concessionary holders to take on the tasks of of developing control and administration the portuguese then sold concessions to private capitalists uh, sometimes very often not portuguese uh, and they set up plantations these things were called prazos P-R-A-Z-O-S, Prazush. And um, so it's a, it is a big land area, but what it gives you the right to is to claim the products and the labor of those who are within that area, not to organize the working of the land, which they didn't do. But the Portuguese kind of lost control over these Prazush before the 
formal occupation. That was, you know, the, the concessions were not, uh, they really weren't managing them very well. But by the end of the 19th century, what was happening was that they were giving these concessions to groups of capital and shares were sold on these concessions in the London market. So they were, by that point, really capitalist enterprises trying to make a profit. And they usually promised that they were going to do something like there's going to be a rich mine or there's going to be this or whatever. Actually, some of them ended up selling labor to would recruit labor and sell it on because they never actually raised the capital to make any investment themselves. And that's quite typical of that period of, you know, European capitalism. Yeah, it's not too strange. And they then um, administered the South, uh, brought settlers into some areas of the South, and gave these big concessionary companies authorization to open up mines and um, to establish plantations, which then did become landed property. And further north, but much later, in the 1930s, um, they also then opened up under their administration uh, tea plantations, so in the northern part of central Mozambique. And again, only in the late 30s and 1940s, they took over administration of the northern provinces, particularly the most populated one, Nampula, and made it a prime cotton area based on um, the use of forced cropping. All of this was, however, allowed from, I think, I can no longer quite remember the date. This is terrible. I think it's 18, 1890, but could be sometime in the 1890s. There was a the setting up of a labor code, which was an alternative to slavery. So um, this was the formal end then of slavery, and it forbade people to use slave labor but instead instituted a labor obligation of six months for men and um, in some areas, three months for women, in which they were supposed to, use, to produce something that was of value. So this was export crops that would be sold. So that's the definition of value. And uh, in some areas, people were forced to sell their labor. So very, they were paid very, very small, uh, you know, a pittance of wages. And, but it was enough to pay your taxes. And then it was controlled when they returned to their villages. So in some areas, that was really it, the six months of work. In the South, where it was much more difficult to establish cash crops outside the valley areas which were taken over by these settlers, um, they sold the labor to recruitment bureaus for the South African mines. So it was the right to recruitment that was sold, not the, not the labor itself. Um, but in return for that, they also 
received a part of the workers' wages. So it was not, it wasn't directly forced labor as it was for the plantations within Mozambique, um, but effectively the system, the operation of the labor market depended on the system of forced recruitment, which the Portuguese profited from. So different forms of forced labor and forced cropping across Mozambique. So what, uh, what we've got here then is a series of systems. It's not like the Portuguese, and similar to the British in India, they didn't necessarily have one size fits all plans for all parts of India. And neither did the Portuguese have one size fits all plans for all of what they conquered in Mozambique or what they established their control over in Mozambique. But what's central to it, as you've talked about, is uh, forced labor, whether that is legally forced labor or that is kind of informally forced labor. And in the in the northern parts or the central and northern parts, you're talking about plantations uh, or mines. And so you're forcing people to go work in those mines and, and plantations. And in the south, that labor is going to South African mines, and uh, w- which is a huge kind of a migration of men mostly who are going to South African mines and uh, whatever uh, wages they earn, part of that the, the colonial authorities are taking. But why, how is forced labor then different from slavery and why was it necessary to force people to work in the first place? Um, I think that the, the latter is easier to discuss, I think. What was generally true was that um, in that period anyway, people in most areas were involved in some way in consumption of marketed goods. And they also could sell goods which they would market in many areas, yeah. So I think we now put less emphasis on the fact that they hadn't been introduced to the market. It's not exactly that, but the kind of work that they were being asked to do and the payment they received was under such conditions that they they would rather do something else. So it's, it's not so much that people were um, rejecting uh, the work because they were subsistence-oriented but that they actually could live better, including having access to commodities, by controlling their own labor. And what you could ask then was, well, then why didn't they do what the South Africans did and remove them completely from their land, yeah? But in fact, uh, that was not going to be profitable. What would you do with that labor? They weren't investing. They didn't actually have something so great to offer, yeah? So I, I think I, I think it's 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 right um, to raise that question, but it's a question which when you look at it against European history, makes a different kind of sense than what it means when we ask it in relation to Mozambique. They often used forced labor 
to bid down wages. If they'd been offering a better wage, it wouldn't have been so difficult. So people are not necessarily opposed to the work that the Portuguese are asking them to do. They're just saying, hey, give us a better price. Well, and no, I think that they, but it, or conditions of work, you know, who, um, there might be a spirit of adventure. There had been this kind of tramping stuff that had been done in southern Mozambique when people would go tramping off, you know, the men's groups in the dry, in the dry season went climbing mountains in South Africa and, you know, stuff like that, or, or big hunting things and whatever, and often under the control of chiefs. That part was, was true. Um, but when diamond mining opened up and they um, wanted to attract people, well, they had to pay, there was, they had very few of these trampers, um, and even more so, when they wanted to start mining the gold um, in South Africa, they simply couldn't get enough workers who would take a lower wage than what they wanted to pay. So the turn to force was a way of intervening in a labor market. It's creating a labor force and creating a cheap labor force by saying, if you do not pay this um, and if I understand correctly, the, the mechanism of forcing is direct coercion, but there's also like you have to pay the colonial administration these taxes in cash, and if you don't pay it in cash, then you know we'll we'll beat you up or imprison you or whatever. Yeah, they, and they they used force. I mean, they did. They had behind it a system of whips and imprisonment, I mean, physical punishment and imprisonment if you didn't pay your tax in those areas, yeah? So this is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure how, how to make sense of this. In a, in a way, like you're creating a proletariat or a waged labor force through just brazen violence. Like it's not even... There's no, we're not here talking about the, the invisible hand of the market. We're talking about the very visible <laughs> slapping of the uh, a colonial market. Yeah, and, 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 a, and a colonial market is often, uh, is, brings together interdependently segments of a labor market. So it's a way of bringing down wages in areas that... I, <laughs> where there is not forced labor. So not all of the workers may necessarily be forced, but the wages that they will be paid are constrained by the existence of forced laborers paying, paid much less. And that is consistently done. So if labor is being mobilized by force and other forms of compulsion in Mozambique, uh, to get people to work on plantations or work in mines, or even if they are have their own land to grow certain crops, then who is doing the work and how are they doing it in central Punjab? A lot of this had to do with one's relationship to property, but who was going to get that property? Who got those land grants from the British? How much of it were they going to get? And on what basis? And with what justification? So in other words, what do class relations look like in these new canal colonies? 
So what happens there is that on the social side, the British make a very strategic decision. Number one, most of the land is going to be given in what they call peasant-sized grants. In Urdu, it's called Abadkar grants of up to 50 acres. Right? Now, who's going to get that land? That land is going to be given to the peasant landed lineages in the old villages, in the settled villages. So you are taking the upper peasantry, the already landed peasantry, and transplanting them as the upper or landed peasantry in these new areas. So who is not being given land is actually the service costs with various derogatory terms ascribed to them like kamis. You know, the service costs were excluded from the granting of land. And what the British are saying is that, yes, they can move with their, uh, you know, up, uh, caste overlords, so-called, I mean, the, the upper peasantry, to whom they're providing services. They can move to these villages, but continue with the same hierarchical activities and roles. So on the one hand, there's a huge economic expansion, but on the other hand, there is a huge effort to retain the structure of society, the social structure, and not to disturb that. But in fact, by giving these new lands, huge amounts of new lands to the upper peasantry, the already land-owning peasantry, the British then incredibly and hugely strengthen these elements. So that is where your conservatism begins to then sort of uh, kick in. So, so, okay, so here we have the smaller grants of up to 50 acres. And that was the deal in the Chinab colony, which was the largest. Now from 50 to 150 acres, they had a category called yeoman grants. Now what's the yeoman grant? Yeoman grant is a guy who's somewhat above the peasant cultivator, the peasant landowner, you know, and might have play a very useful role in social control as well, the person of some influence. And so a category was created for them, which uh, was a problem because many tended to be absentees and would go back to their villages. Now, the interesting thing is that above 150 acres, there was another category created which was for your now like rural magnets. And that was called capitalist grants in English. But guess what the name was in Urdu, in the vernacular? Race grants. Now capitalism, capitalist is not race. So in the translation, you know, it's literally what you might call lost in translation. These guys were then the upper rural hierarchy who were also accommodated in these canal colonies. So, the, so see, you're, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, sorry, just to clarify then, the, the what you say about absenteeism. So most of the people who are getting grants over 50 acres, there's 50 to 150 in yeoman grants. Above that, there's capitalist grants. These people already have their own land in their own villages. Absolutely. So what they're just doing is they're sitting in their own villages and renting the land out. Uh, yeah, they might, because, I mean, these are very harsh environments. Can you imagine, I mean, going from your age-old village in Jalandhar, Lodhiana, Amritsar, Hosharpur, and going into this huge arid land with, to some extent, hostile indigenous people, 
who began the rasagiri process <laughs> stealing their cattle you know stealing their crops etc uh, and you know uh, settling there now the peasant grants to a large extent were successful that's why you know they were productive but then you could have absenteeism going on among these uh, more elite uh, kind of and so they weren't that successful but clearly the british are uh, transferring resources to them to keep them happy and that's the whole story of the punjab there was enough land available to keep all your intermediaries and beneficiaries more than happy so that they could say goodbye to the nationalist movement and say you know thanks a lot we're doing okay out here so what we see is the hierarchy is preserved the village abadis are spa- specially bifurcated in such a way to replicate the old homes where your land owning peasant bhayachara patidari is in one area the service castes or the kamis are in another area etc so the british are very you know careful not to kind of uh, they you know they been through the 1857 trauma you see not to disturb the sensibilities of the people and in fact to keep them within their cultural parameters and then the question has to be asked i mean if you got to have development do you have to change the culture if the culture is too strong are you really going to have transformation so those questions begin to play on a sort of a wider level and of course the the grants and the colonies are very productive they do increase the revenue for the state also so there is a, a direct link to the bank balance basically of the state also yeah absolutely i mean these are revenue rich areas and uh, the british are very particular to extract the revenue you see now we have a situation where our dysfunctional state let's say is in very heavy debt the expenditure is way above the capacity to earn and you find that the british uh, exercise a lot of fiscal discipline so these become uh, of course revenue uh, and uh, you know uh, uh, revenue surplus areas i think uh and they have a system of uh, almost field by field assessment fluctuating assessment based on the kind of crops grown uh linked with the productive capacity of each acre so that they are to some extent able to extract their uh, 20 15 to 20% maybe of uh, revenue but where uh, and then there's the uh, water rates the abiana and interestingly the abiana becomes the major source of revenue more than land revenue because water has a certain cost but then interestingly for some decades the british try to extract or get the economic value of water and they're not able to do that and you can only do that if you are able to uh, measure the water volumetric assessment so uh, they have to give and take you see the within a short while the peasantry or these land grantees begin to link up with the native bureaucracy and to defeat the more developmental goals of the british the more transformational goals uh, of the british and maybe also of the post colonial state so this is another thread that works through there that they're also dependent on the uh, native bureaucracy because there's just a handful of british officials and the native bureaucracy is corrupt right from the start it's not that corruption started in the 1980s or whatever 
It's been here for hundreds of years. And when you see the audit reports of colony offices like Faisalabad, then Lailpur and Saiwal, Montgomery, Sargoda, uh, the British realized by the 30s that these characters are playing their own games because there's millions of transactions involved in choosing a grantee, you know, giving a temporary lease, a probationary period, finally giving land uh, uh, proprietorship rights, uh, etc. You know, so there's huge amounts of opportunity for these uh, native bureau- bureaucracy groups to uh, extract their own rents, and that, of course, then is another theme that carries on. I mean, then we, after 1947, reap the whirlwind of bureaucratic corruption. So, in a sense, what we can say is that if the market forces had been given their due, like they they were allowed to operate, uh, and by market forces, we're specifically, it's not just a random abstract concept. We're actually talking about traders, money lenders, who were trying to commercialize the land, but they are blocked, and it does not necessarily benefit the lower sections of society because they've already been excluded through the process of land grants and who gets to have land, who does not get to have land. It's really the upper landlords and the upper peasantry that you're talking about yeah, who are, are the prime beneficiaries. And, and so they have no interest in saying, yeah, let's let the uh, the you know so-called kamis and janglis who we've displaced and who are now our <laughs> servants, let's give them the vote. <laughs> let's see what they yeah. have to think. Sure. And even uh, the janglis, uh, you know, their upper elements are given land grants, and uh, but half the size of the others, etc. Uh, and so they form this floating population of not very skilled, uh, you know, uh, landless labor. Uh, but then among their elements, they've emerged as politically powerful after 47. So, uh, yes, clearly, this is the thing. Now, but of course, therefore, the incentive for the non-landed service costs is to diversify their occupations. So as economic expansion happens, they also move into uh, different, uh, you know, opportunities, etc. So it's it's a it's a dynamic situation, but clearly I would see the whole canal colony process, you know, as an emergence of a strengthening of the upper elements. So you can see how a new class hierarchy uh, and a new institutional hierarchy is being crafted out of the displacement of indigenous people, of original people. There's landless people, there's landowners, there's a native bureaucracy, and there's also one crucial institution that has come to play a pretty significant role in post-colonial Pakistan, which we will discuss in a bit. Before that, let's go back to Mozambique. Here, you don't necessarily have sizable landowners created out of nothing. You have some of that. So we talked about how concessions, which were leased out to capitalist enterprises, became their private property. We also talked about white settlers, especially in the southern parts of of the uh, land. But uh, there's an important way in which forced labor, and especially migration off-farm, creates hierarchies or differentiation in rural communities. And those are differences of class or class differentiation. This intersects quite directly with relations of gender. Now, I should note that I overlooked discussing gender with Dr. Imran Ali, but Dr. Bridget Lachlan did discuss it with me. 
So you mentioned that the forced labor was for men, it's six months of the year in general. And for women, there was also three, three months of uh, forced labor. Yeah, but or forced or and, and in, in the forced cropping areas, which would then be an alternative, um, you could have uh, the requirement was for a man, a hectare of cotton, for example, and for a woman, a half hectare. Oh, so it's not it's not directly necessarily about time use. It's about give us this much. Um, they, they would, you know, would would um, measure out the areas, and, and that was what was supposed to be done. Obviously, what, yeah, it was not about the time used because very often um, household members. It doesn't necessarily mean that each one was set was separately cultivating their field. I mean, tasks tended to be weeding for women and women were often doing all of the weeding or a great part of the weeding in men's fields so but but on the books it's measuring if there's a household in which there's a man and he's got um three wives then it will be a hectare for him and one and a half hectares besides um for three wives um, and they are required to um, to clear that amount of land. This is during the um, cash cropping period, I mean, during the forced cropping period. But those things become routinized and part of the way in which people think about the organization of their fields and their, you know, what they do. But when it's you know when they eliminated the forced cropping legislation um many households were much more variable in what crops they grew um and how much what areas they grew that's something maybe we can come back in in a second um so basically if i understand correctly it's not necessarily that in all parts of mozambique the portuguese established direct control over land Maybe in the south where Portuguese white settlers were coming from Portugal and they took overland, that might have involved displacement. In other parts, through concessions, these private companies took over large tracts of land and perhaps established plantations on which they needed forced labor. And then in other parts of Mozambique, they kind of not exactly left the land alone but they did not establish direct control over the land. Instead, they said, if you're a man, you need to produce one hectare worth of this. And for each woman in your family, it has to be a half hectare worth of this. So you guys can organize that however you want. We just want to see the results. Yes. And then in in others, they said, you have to go work here, you know? Um, So that's your, for six months. And you've already touched on a little bit on how gender relations change in those areas where they're forcing the cropping as opposed to the labor. But can you go a little bit more into then, uh, I guess, if we can, if we just to speak schematically, there are areas of forced cropping and then there's areas of forced labor where men are actually physically removed from the from their farms for a certain period of time, six months uh, and from their own farming work. And so how does that change gender relations? I think you've you've written uh, a fair bit on this, and it's very interesting stuff. Um, it varies also. Um, remember that the South 
was um, quite different in the sense that the contracts for the mines were um, a year or 18 months. So there was a much longer withdrawal of men in, when they're in their youth from farming itself during that year. So you got changes in the division of labor. Um, and But at the same time, of course, when men came back, they um, took over some of those tasks again. Uh, women, however, took on much more cattle care than they'd done before with children. They didn't do the faraway herding, but they, they did that kind of cattle care in those areas. And the pressure on households uh, was such that in many cases, they formed larger units with their in-laws or whatever. So that might affect the division of labor. But um, the authority within the household went to the senior wives for household tasks and to the older male heads of households. So that would be in the South with these longer absences. In the areas where there were forced cropping, then you got a redefinition of some of the clearing work for that those areas tended to be defined administratively and there was a much more much more involvement of women in doing the food cropping stuff and leaving more of the management of cash cropping to men and and the and the income went to to men rather than well, to representing the household as a whole. So there was a lot of tension around the intensification of the use of women's labor, both because of the absence of men and because of these shifts in the organization of fields. And you, But you do also have other kinds of work that, man, you know, like hunting and all those things still really mattered for household to the idea of what a basic household should provide. So what was women's relationship to the formal labor market, if, if we can speak in those terms? That were, were they also engaged in wage labor? Were they also migrating? Or was this highly, highly gendered? Um, it was highly gendered by relations of authority. Um, that is, women were neither by the Portuguese nor by, the, because all of this had to be backed up by a system of local authority. And customary chiefs, they had that you had to have their authorization to leave, and they did not give it to women. Uh, so it wasn't till later on in the nineteen late nineteen fifties sixties when there were um, there was more development of industrial centers and urban centers, and in those cases there was demand for domestic work, and in that case the notion of who the ideal domestic worker was expanded. The early domestic workers were also men, but that was expanded to include women. So that, that kind of, of wage work also was done by women on a migrant base. But the big shift is actually with 
the development of commodity production within households themselves because the presence of wage work for men also led to remittances. In some cases, it led to the purchase in the South. It led to the purchase of cattle and bringing back plows. So you got commodity production expanding and pressure on women both for you know, doing weeding for expanded areas and also for their own households and a rise in the increase of what is called um, in Mozambique and actually in, in other areas of the region. I think it's from the Portuguese word to earn, ganhar. So it's called ganyu ganyu or ganyu, and that's day labor, a lot of which is done by, by women, sometimes by, by men more rarely, um, and sometimes by children. And remittances, remittance income can serve as a fund for doing ganyu labor. So that's related to in okay. fact, the differentiation that emerges with the expansion of commodity production. So if I'm understanding correctly, basically you've got men who in, in much of the country are gone for a year, a year and a half, or even six months. They're just not there. And so older men and have to step in more into production and women have to step step up their their involvement in production and this also involves as men are sending back money and some families are able to take advantage of that and buy plows and thereby increase their cultivation increase their control over land and and stuff they also need to hire labor or day labor as you said and mostly the people they're going to hire for day labor are women and so we've got a serious changing in gender roles and gender relations, but not necessarily in a way that increases women's autonomy or independence because they're still subordinated to the elder males or the senior wives, the senior women in the family. Mm-hmm. But you do, you do increasingly in the South, as in South Africa, for example, um, you begin to have also a higher incidence of women-headed households that do not cycle back into becoming male-headed households. You know, in fact, the man never returns, and those households tend to be poor, okay. which comes up in relation to, you know, another question that you've asked me about, which is gender relations and land because those households don't have either a fund to hire extra labor themselves or sufficient labor to expand their areas or even sometimes to cultivate the land they've got. So kind of having a, uh, I don't know, I, I was thinking dual income, but that's not quite the thing. So, But having extra income from men who are sending money home has a huge impact of what position you occupy in a hierarchy of, of rural or agrarian um, class, basically. Yeah. And obviously, you know, if a woman is capturing the income flow, uh, rather than her father-in-law, she will choose to spend it in different ways. 
typically the father-in-law gets a lot of, from investing in cattle. Um, women get much less. And also, if it's an extended family household, they really don't control it. Yeah, they don't control the herd. So what would women rather be investing in? Uh, almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> School fees for kids, you know, um, clothes, whatever, consumption. Because the cattle thing, this is not always true, yeah? I mean, um, I, I, I've seen women, especially if it's a household which is a single family household. Uh, um, I've had women tell me stories about jumping into a flooding river to save their cow. So, you know, it's not a absolute. But the problem with a system where you have patrilineages, extended family households, exchange of bride wealth with cattle, and it's all controlled by men, then investment in that cattle uh, gives women practically nothing. This was best said to me, in fact, by a woman not from Mozambique, but Botswana, who's also, you know, a, a lawyer, a, a person of our class, yeah, or something like that. But in discussing this problem, she said to me, since, you know, lots of people in Botswana invest in very large herds, um, because of this risk of losing the cattle to the male part of your family, she said, my cattle are my bank account. She'd rather invest in that. Wow. As long as she has control over her. her the, the bank account's in her name. Yeah. Yeah. The risk with the cattle. I mean, you can make a, money, a lot of money out of cattle, but um, he, the family claims are really not yours. And they are gender structured so you can see how changes set into motion in colonial times have very important effects now with respect to gender control of assets class differentiation speaking of how things in colonial times can have effects now let's return to one last discussion on punjab and institutional legacies as this colonization process proceeds uh, you have this incredible, at the turn of the 20th century, horse and mule breeding commission set up by the military department of the government of India. And that says, well, okay, henceforth, all colony land should be given for the breeding of military horses, which is a huge kind of you know, departure or a spectacular kind of uh, capture of resources. So the Punjab government says, hey, listen, hold on. I mean, we can't do this everywhere, but wherever we can, we will facilitate and uh, uh, help you with this. So interestingly, as the one major colony, Chanab, is handed over to uh, people from central Punjab, a lot of them, most of them being non-Muslim, and there's this emerging feeling which some British... Uh, uh, officials are also kind of uh, expressing that there is discomfort among the Muslim population that, you know, what's going to, what, what the hell is going on in our area? You've got So the next big colony is in the interflu, the Doab between the Chanab and the Jhelum, with the construction of the lower Jhelum canal. And this coincides with the horse and mule breeding commission proposals. Now, this area was then 
reserved for people from Rawalpindi division. That is to satisfy or service the Muslim clans of northwestern Punjab, who were also militarily pretty important. And Malcolm Haley, as a young officer, you know, Malcolm Haley then had a fantastic career, you know, stellar career, became governor of Punjab and then governor of UP, etc. Uh, he, as a young man, is the colonization officer. And he's told Midway, hey, listen, stop choosing agriculturists and people with agricultural skills. You mu they must own a mayor and we are going to give this land in horse breeding terms. So the whole thing changes and the entire Jhelum colony is created as a horse breeding zone. So <laughs> the requirement then becomes uh, owning a mare so that you uh, produce young stock for the cavalry, which is the beginnings of what I call the militarization of the canal colonies. So that is a big phenomenon, horse breeding. The other big form of militarization is uh, the granting of land to military Pensioners initially starts quite small, 50-60,000 acres in Janab colony with over a million acres to hand out. But with the uh, break, uh, outbreak of World War I, it acquires a major kind of a dimension. And this is a big kind of uh, reward phenomenon that other provinces of British India can't really match. I mean, you've got a guy coming in from Madras or from Maharashtra and he loses an arm and a leg, you know, what are you going to do for him? I mean, you're going to give him a turban and a certificate. Thanks a lot. You've done well. Like in Punjab, the guy's, the guy's going to get 50 acres. So the soldier settlement process takes off and goes into hundreds of thousands of acres. Then with the emergence in, in around 1915 of the next big canal project, which is the Lower Bari Doab Canal in Montgomery, or what's now Sahiwal, Distrair, Okada, Khadewal, etc. area. And that's like one major chapter in my book is called Militarization. And now one can say, of course, that that's the precursors, precursor of military influence in this area, perhaps. But clearly there is a militarization of the agrarian economy. So it, it is a large amount of uh, institutional resource capture by by the military, certainly by 1947. And it then emerges as one of the major beneficiaries and major developed institutions in this area, more than I think in the British, uh, other parts of the British New Empire. So what do you take away from all of this? I, I think what I, you know, I'm trying to say is that it's such a complex set of processes and linkages and permutations that, uh, you know, uh, students should be given time to think about these things, you know, and then the fascination of the acquisition of knowledge comes in, you know. We rush through huge whatever in our courses and, you know, whatever, but but uh, at least as, at this stage, even if you can introduce them to the fascination of, you know, the varieties of history or whatever, political economy, so I was, I went, I went to teach English and I taught in a lycée in Cameroon from 65 to 67. So this was about five years, it was five years after independence. And um, it was a real 
eye-opener for me. Basically, I both met people who taught me a lot, and I was in a situation that taught everyone a lot. So I came to understand that there was no such thing as modernization and that people's histories were quite historically important and different and that you had to deal with class. It wasn't just about mobility, that it was a relation and how tightly tied up it was with colonialism, um, at least in the context within which I was living.